0: He's Jonathan. He's Timothy. And this is Project 1517. Scripture. Theology. Life. Well, Timothy, I got to tell you, because you did not experience this like I did, but just a few weeks ago, I was sitting in my house, cuddled up, praying that the power would stay on as I watched pine trees and southern oaks sway in the breeze. And I got to tell you, one of the things that I love to do, and and my wife Melanie hates it when I do this, is whenever there's a powerful storm like this, I like to walk out in it. I like to feel the, the wind rip across my body. I like to feel the pelting of the rain on my skin and it reminds me of my place in the universe. There is no more powerful scene in all of creation than the scene of a storm. And that is the storm of a lifetime that we're walking into here, Um I know it was Irma that came through and everybody I mean Florida just emptied out. We had people at our house in South Carolina sheltering from from Irma. And again, we're time stating this time stamping this podcast, but there's nothing like a storm that shows you your place in the created world. And that's what we got here. Isn't that the truth? I mean, I remember not too long ago here in New York, it was actually this last Sunday was the fifth anniversary of Sandy, and New York is still recovering. Man, did that bring, that storm brought New York City to its knees. Uh, gas lines, miles, longs, people, a guy at a gas station a couple blocks from my house actually pulled a gun, and it, it just humbled um america's greatest city at least in my opinion <laughs> <laughs> so we got so. we got we had scene one right scene one jonah flees scene one charters the boat yep. he flees scene two. jonah's on the boat he's in the middle of the ocean and then scene two the action starts by the lord then the lord sent a great wind on the sea Ooh, feel that wind so jo- feel that rain look at those waves Wow. Jonah is not going to make it to Tarshish. <laughs> there, there is just no way. Now, before we get into these next verses, because there's, this is a little bit of a longer chunk uh, that we're going to take today. We got to take that hot air balloon ride. We got to notice the structure that's happening here at in scene two of the book of Jonah. So what we're going to be t- taking today is verses four through 15. Um, we're, we're going to read those verses in a second, but we just want to notice the structure. And the first thing I want to point out is that there is a chiasm, um, to this thing. And the middle verse is verse nine, where Jonah's going to preach his little itty bitty sermon. (laughs) So, so where he says, I am a beautiful sermon. It's a beautiful sermon. Yeah, he I mean it's a confession of faith and he's gonna save people through his little itty bitty sermon. And a chiasm um, so a chiasm is it has the same thought at the beginning and the end, right? That's what a chiasm is. And the emphasis is in the middle. Yeah. So it's a highly again, we're looking at a highly structured work. Tells us and more. let me let me yeah, let me tell you how highly structured this is. Starting at verse 4, there is exactly, exactly, exactly 94 words until you get to Jonah's confession of faith, his little itty-bitty sermon. After verse 9 there, there is again exactly, exactly 94 words until the end of verse uh, 16. Now we're talking Hebrew words. Hebrew words, yes. I didn't count the English, did you?
1: I didn't, I didn't count, count the, the English, English. yet, yeah. But the
0: point is, wow, somebody wrote a... I mean, who sits there like, you can, you can do art, right? You can do rhetorical art. You can do beautiful literature. But somebody worked out. You know, that, that doesn't just happen coincidentally. Oops, there's 94 words here and there's 94 words there. Wow, that's amazing. I, w- what we have to say and admit about this book is this, this is beautiful. This is a highly structured, amazing story from an amazing narrator. And he's going to do this again later in the book. We'll point it out again. Um, Now, sadly, here's something we also have to admit. People will read the story and they'll say, "Wow, look at how beautiful this is! Look at the structure. Look at the words, that are even counted down to the number. You know, ninety-four words." And they'll say, "Clearly, clearly, this is a work of fiction." Well, it has to be, right? Clearly, <laughs> this we're can't. We're being sarcastic, by the way. just not be case a real story. There, we're being yeah. sarcastic. <laughs>
1: Well, well, it can't well, be. All right.
0: What's the argument, right? It's it's too it's too highly structured to actually be a real thing. That's the argument. Now, I I actually texted my sister about this. She's a little bit of a historian. She's got her master's degree, and and I said, hey, uh, little sister, why do historians think that history must be boring for it to be true, or <laughs> or or has to be ugly to be true? Yeah, like, let's make the history books as boring as possible. Um, We won't put any work into the structure. So people don't want want to read it. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. What did she say? I'm curious. What did she actually say? We are such weak historians, Jonathan. that somebody's going to ping us for this one. But... Yeah, they will. Right, <laughs> no, in. Said, right oh, in. No, she said, oh, no, history is completely um, exciting to her. She's, she's like, what are you talking about? But so I don't know. She, she would probably um, say, oh, this is an amazing story. And it's, it's definitely history. I don't know what you're talking about, Timothy and Jonathan. But other other scholars will say this is too good of a story for it to be real. Um, and then and then they'll go on to say this. They'll say, Wow. Explain to me how Jonah survived in the belly of a whale. I like the tone there. I like the tone there. <laughs> how is this possible that you can marinate in the belly of a fish yeah. and make it out alive? He, he didn't have an oxygen tank, and if, even if he did, you know, he he wouldn't have it would have ran out. So, know, sassy, right? you know. so sassy, right? So sassy. Yeah. And explain to me how an entire great city like Nineveh repented. And they'll go into all the unbelievable things in this story that simply um, couldn't have happened. You want to respond to that kind of thinking? Yes. Because yes, this I is do. actually one of the big, <laughs> this is one of the big uh, questions in the whole book. Is Jonah fact or fiction? And they'll say it's fiction because it's too good of a story and because of the stuff that happens in it. Now, some of you, some of you out there, I'm just going to speak to your minds for a second and say uh, some of you are listening as uh, in in conservative Christian churches. And you're like, whoa, I didn't. I didn't even know that people could think that way, that this is mythology, beautiful mythology, but mythology, and in it, in it, what it does is it just teaches us something about life. But this is a real thing. Like I, I sat with, uh, actually, somebody who had pastored uh, another church, and, and we were just talking. And Jonah's actually a litmus case for your approach to Holy Scripture, and uh, he said, "I don't think that Jonah's history." Uh, he said, "I think it teaches a valuable lesson, but I don't think it's actually history." Um, and so, this is a real thing. This is a real thing. And uh, my response, my response to that, would be, uh, "I think that you can have a highly structured, beautifully written piece of literature." That is also very true. And I believe that because I believe that this is something the Spirit gave us. And the Spirit can do beautiful things that are also true. And the Scriptures are just full of those kinds of things. And look, I'm just getting started with the argument. Timothy, I'll let you carry it on. All right. I mean, just to the argument that history must always be boring and, and ugly. I mean, I think we've already dispensed with that. You know, history is a very exciting thing. And there's no reason why you can't um, tell the story in a beautiful way. That, that argument just falls flat on its face. Um, I mean, the, the other one is like, uh, can Jonah really be true history? The reason why, uh, and philosophers talk about this, The reason why so many people don't believe that Jonah really happened is because it's outside of their normal experience. So, like, they will say, I've never seen someone get swallowed by a whale before, and then live. Therefore, it cannot happen. And by the way, that actually did happen once. (laughs) Back, back, uh, uh, like, a hundred years ago, a guy was swallowed by a shark and he lived to tell its story. He became a circus act. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. It's a really really cool story. Um, And they'll say, I've never seen a whole city repent at the preaching of the Lord. Couldn't happen, you know. So, and Troich is the first guy who actually came up with this argument. People have followed it. It, It's called... um, the analogy to human experience, right? So if I haven't experienced it, it can't possibly be true. I haven't seen someone rise from the dead. Can't be true. Hmm. So it's if if it's outside of your experience, it doesn't work. So this is this this, this is called the analogy of predictability. And if you can't predict that it's going to happen, it'll never happen. Now I wanna I wanna just point out to you. The weakness of this argument, because I think I think a lot of people think that Troich's analogy of predictability is like skipping along happily. Like and it's still like, oh, yeah, everybody uh, buys into Troich. Um, But the reality is, should we believe that Hannibal crossing the Alps is real history if we're going to follow the analogy of predictability? Have you ever seen, like, elephants going over the Alps? No. I never have. What about, no. have you ever seen a man land on the moon? I have not. <laughs> I have not either. And, and to think that a man can, I've never actually seen a shuttle take off. I've never seen this stuff. It's not in my everyday experience. It must not have happened. Now, you see how ridiculous that kind of thinking is? It, it, there's real weakness in that argument. Anytime we try to make ourselves final arbiters of truth, we're going to be in trouble because our experience is so small. And, uh, you know, from a Christian's perspective, our, we have sin-darkened minds. We really don't have access to everything. And even if we did, we wouldn't understand it totally. We need somebody else to give to us the truth. Now, the better the better way to determine truth is the analogy of testimony. That's well, what it. does that mean? Well, I mean, you just have to look at, listen to someone's testimony. Someone says, this is my experience. This is, this is what happened to me, like we have here in the book of Jonah. And you evaluate who's saying it. So, you know, somebody might... Are they reliable? Exactly. Is it reliable? Have they ever lied to me? You know? So you go to the testimony, and what proofs do they have for what happened, right? So the Mm -hmm. analogy of testimony. And if you go to that, uh, the analogy of testimony, we have every reason to believe that this is real and that this happened, especially when you consider the fact that Jesus believed that it was real. (laughs) And we're going to have to spend a long time on that, especially as we get to the sign of jonah. Or, yeah, so right, you know, he finally he's the arbiter of truth. He's the man sent from God. And he builds his whole ministry on the sign of jonah. And and the whole thing falls apart. The sign of jonah falls apart if this isn't real history. So we're going to present this is this is real history, the narrator's presenting it. As real history, at no point does the narrator ever suggest in this entire book that this is anything less than something that's completely historical. And we have every reason to believe it's true. The Spirit of God gave it to us. And uh, it's it's incredible history, highly structured history, artistic history, which makes it all the more compelling. That's what we're trying to say. That's right. Now, uh, we should read it. We should read it. You want to read it or should I? This is is awesome. (laughs) Dig in. Do it. Go. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? I love that. So many questions. are getting pounded. He's just getting pounded. (laughs) He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. (laughs) (laughs) Suicidal Jonah. Jonah. (laughs) Oh, Jonah. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you. O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and took him and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Oh, man, there's a lot in there. I have no idea how we're going to cover all this stuff. But there's really a bunch of things going down here. We got what the pagans are up to. Well, at least they start out as pagans. You got what, yeah. you got what Jonah's doing. And then you got what the Lord is doing. And is it okay, Timothy, if I just start out with uh, some opening comments about what the Lord is doing there? So in verse four. Well, absolutely. He's the whole driver of the action. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Yeah. So, yeah. so the Lord, and and it actually the Hebrew verb there, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm remembering correctly, it's the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened. To break up. So, you, what, one of the things that I want to I want to back out uh, for a second, just take a big view, cultural view of the sea. One of the things that we have to understand about ancient people is that they looked at the sea as the most threatening, unpredictable, foreboding place on earth. And you know, I'm I'm going to say this to modern people, and uh, look if. If you're from the southeast, and Timothy, you even said people from New York City understand this as well, it still is. It still is in our modern world. I mean, just a, just a few weeks ago, Florida absolutely emptied out. Florida emptied out. You, you can still see images of what happened down there in the tropics. The sea is still the thing we can't control. Um, there are things underneath it that, that lurk that will come up and get you, and we're going to see that later uh, in Jonah. And uh, But what I'm trying to show you here is that the Lord controls the most unpredictable thing on earth. That's what you see here. You see the Lord controlling that, being in charge of that. You could say he's lording it over that. And uh, uh, look, if we take a big biblical view of this thing, what is one of the first things Jesus does in the Gospels to show us He's the Lord of everything to show us his saving capability. What does he do? He controls the sea. Yeah. He controls right. the sea. He's he quiets the storm. And right there. Right there. I know there are some listeners out there right now who have something in their life that feels uncontrollable to them. That feels like it's not being mastered to them for them. That that feels completely and utterly threatening to them. And you can name whatever that is in your life. Maybe it's a bad boss, maybe it's maybe it's cancer. Whatever it is, whatever feels uh, scary and threatening and out of control of you for you. One of the things you have to see here is uh, the Lord's got it. The Lord absolutely has it. He has his hand on he it. He has his hand on it. He even has his hand on the sea. And look, I'll I'll give you another one. Let me give you one more and then i'm just I, we're backed out here for a second but let me give you one more when the lord so the lord in in the gospels the lord uh, feeds the 5000 and then the very next scene is he walks on the water he walks or if you read it in greek he walks on the sea which he doesn't run on it <laughs> you know, the lord right yeah. the lord yeah. the lord could have transported himself he could have he done Michael Phelps and, and swam in it really fast like a shark. He doesn't. He walks on it. Why does he walk on it? Jesus is showing us he has complete and utter dominance over the most unpredictable thing on earth, which is, oh, man, that is so I love it. That is so comforting. I love it. And that's exactly what's going on here in Jonah. Jonah wants to run away. Jonah wants to get away. And the Lord says, I got this, and I got you, Jonah. Well, what, well, what's he doing? Like, to take the big sweep of things in this narrative, he, what we see is that creation is actually a foil to Jonah. Creation does exactly what God wants it to do. Every single time. He, he puts his hand on creation, and creation obeys. So the wind comes, boom, creation obeys. They throw lots. The lots obey, and they point out Jonah, and what what the Lord is doing through creation is He's running after Jonah. He's saying, "Dear Jonah, where are you going? You can't, you can't get away from me, <laughs> even." So so we have these foils, this disobedient religious monster Jonah, um, the, and the Lord chasing him. Even in the palm, like think of you just think of this. Think of the Palm Sunday account. Creation's often a foil for disobedience, right? How even the rocks can cry out their (laughs) their praises when the praises of God when disobedient people don't want to. So creation is always in line with the will of God, and uh, it's just a beautiful thing. And in this case, God's going to use creation to get after a disobedient child. And it's so obedient that this giant. Dog, this giant fish, and we'll get into this more in chapter two, is swimming by at the exact moment that he needs to be swimming by to swallow up Jonah, who just got tossed into the sea. You know, so it's creation is a foil to disobedient Jonah. You know who else is? The pagans. Oh, (laughs) segue, segue. Let's talk about those pagans. Let's talk about them. I mean... The pagans are head and shoulders above Jonah in their piety, (laughs) Well, which is amazing (laughs) to think about. It it is. This is the the whole irony. We talked about this before, but the whole irony of this thing, everything's a foil for Jonah. So in verse 4, now you can't see this in English. In English, this is what it says. The ship uh, threatened to break up. That's what it says in English. But actually in the Hebrew, it says that the ship thought... Oh, yeah. I forgot to mention That's that. That's incredible. It cons- the, the ship considered itself. The yeah. ship's like, oh, Ro- no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is the, the whole irony of this is Jonah's not thinking at all. Jonah, and we're going to see that when we consider Jonah more. But Jonah's not considering anything at all. He's just like, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to go to sleep. But the ship's thinking about things. And then immediately yeah. the ship's like, oh, no, this is not going to go well for me. <laughs> and then <laughs> which is just you know so the ship understands better than better than Jonah does the ship the ship gets the it ship gets the ship it. gets it and then and <laughs> the sailors get it too and if you track if you track the the pagans or you, you track the people this is what happens in verse 5 the sailors are afraid right the sailors are afraid. They they fear, and they're praying. Yeah, they're, they're praying. Right. Yeah, they're crying out. <laughs> they're afraid. I love and it. And they're <laughs> praying. And then if not to the right God, but at least they're praying. Yeah. So there's a piety there. And then in verse 10, they they fear a great fear. All right. So they're terrified. That's how it's translated here in the NIV. And they're trying to figure out, they're like they're like undercover detectives. They're trying to figure it out, like, what have you done, Joni? <laughs> Please help us understand. Yeah, yeah. They, so they're thinking, they're considering. And then uh, you have another verb of fearing that's related to the pagans in verse 16, where it says, At this the men greatly feared the Lord. So they've moved from yeah. just a fear of what's going on, to a great fear when they understand Jonah's done something bad here. And then finally, in verse 16, they're fearing the Lord. They're sacrificing, it says, to the Lord. They're making vows to the Lord. It's an amazing, amazing journey for the pagans. There, the Lord, yeah, the Lord moves them to faith. He moves them to faith through Jonah, through his Jonah's disobedience, which is an amazing note of grace that, that God will take disobedience and turn it into salvation for others. Lord, did you just do that? Did you did you do that, Lord? Did you just turn around? <laughs> Are you able to turn around even the acts of your disobedient children and use that to save people? I mean, this is just a, an amazing part of the book because how the Lord wraps this part up as we see these pagans is that he is a heart for these for these sailors and this captain. And some people actually think that the whole key to the book is right here, right in verse 14, where, where the pagans come to this beautiful confession of faith and it says, O oh Lord, Please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And this is the thing that just upsets Jonah in the whole book. The Lord does as he pleases. And what the Lord delights in, what he really wants to do is save sinners. He wants to save the sailors. He wants to save the Ninevites. He wants to save Jonah. He His mercy and His grace is so great that He just doesn't quit. He just never ever quits, and this is why Jonah gets so angry. He's pleased. Look at that. He's pleased. This is what if you want to know what puts a smile on God's face. If if you want to know what gets His heart thumping. If you want to know what really pleases Him, in all the world, it's having people trust him, fear him, love him. This is what the Lord is pleased with. Incredible, incredible stuff as we look at what God has done in the life of the pagans here. Let's just wrap up this podcast with this thought then, and let's all let this come home. If we want to understand what the Lord is doing in our lives, we can understand that the Lord is pleased to draw us to faith, and fear and respect and love in Him. This is the God we have. We are podcasting Scripture one book of the Bible at a time. For more information, visit www.project1517.com or our Facebook page. We do invite you to support this ministry by sharing this podcast with family and friends and by giving us a good review on iTunes. You can also help with the costs of its production by giving a gift on our website. This is Project 1517, Scripture, Theology, Life.